Bibles to Romans chapter 11. And uh, the big theme of Romans 11 is rejected with a question mark. Has God rejected His people, the nation of Israel? And last week we talked about why that, why we should care about that. Well, I'm not Jewish, and uh, you know, why do, what do I care about Israel? And and uh, you know, can I just get on with my Christian life and just kind of live my American dream? Why should I care about it? Well, we talked about that. But what, look at the top of your notes. It says in Romans 11. Paul asks a very logical question, and then he gives a biblical answer. And the reason the question is logical, it's found in Romans 11, verse 1. Let's look at it. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? Has God rejected His people, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel? It's logical because of how radically they've rejected Him. And not just Him, but the person of Jesus Christ. They rejected the person of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Well, the logical answer would be, well, yeah, he has. If he has done all that for them, and they've rejected him, then why wouldn't he reject them? But Paul, in verses 1 and 2, so look at your Bibles, verses 1 and 2, he doesn't give a logical answer, he gives a biblical answer, and he says, by no means. It's impossible. What you're saying is crazy. Why? Because God has not rejected His people completely. And He kind of divides, Romans 11 is divided in verses 1 through 10, and He says He's not rejected them totally or completely. There is a remnant. There is a remnant. A remnant, and for you ladies that sew, the remnant is that cloth that's left over when the, the bulk of it is used up. It's the remnant. And uh, there's, a, there's a portion, okay? And then in Romans 11 through 33, he says, not only has he not rejected them totally, he has not rejected them finally or permanently. You see, there's some people who would say, no, God hasn't rejected them totally. And the reason he hasn't is is for the reasons that we're going to see in today's lesson. Uh, There's Jewish people today who are part of the church. No, there's a remnant. There's a remnant. But what they say is there always will be a remnant, and there'll never be a time when the nation of Israel will be completely, totally restored. And in fact, the, 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 literal, the literal promises of God in the Old Testament to Abraham and his offspring will not be fulfilled. And in the latter part of this chapter, he says, no, that's not true. God's people are not rejected finally or permanently. There will be total national salvation. The whole nation will be saved in the future. So notice what it says there in your notes. No one sin. This is what we need to take away from Romans 11. No one sin, including Israel's, is ever greater than God's sovereign mercy. God's saving promises are greater than the sinful choices of people, and we can all say what to that. Amen. So here's what it is. God's present rejection, which is a judicial hardening. He is he is punishing his people for their disbelief. There are consequences to our choices. But this present rejection of His elect people, Israel, and you run a right in there, it's neither total nor is it final. It's not complete nor is it permanent. I don't care what word you use. You just want that idea. It's not total. It's not final. There's always a remnant. And so today what I want us to do is study verses 1 through 10. And what we're going to see is this idea of total. God has not totally rejected His people Israel. And and I try to get it in a little pithy kind of a way. Here's the big idea of everything we're going to say today. God does not reject His elect. Can we say that together? God does not reject His elect. So, don't neglect what He doesn't reject. Can we, can we do that with a little little... A little spirit, a little little spring in our step because of this great weather. Let's say it together. God does not reject His elect, so don't neglect what He doesn't 
All right, you got it? All right, let's look at it. Let's give some proof. In Romans 11, 1 through 10, we're going to see five, five proofs, five pieces of evidence that Paul's going to present to say, no, God forbid, he has not totally rejected his people, Israel. Let's, let's read the verses together, let's, or, or you follow along as I read. I ask then, has God rejected his people? You're crazy. Okay, that's my paraphrase. By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? There's a novel idea. A prophet of Israel praying against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now Paul makes an application to today. So too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's like, he's like saying, you know, he's just, I, 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 he's getting frustrated, you know, because he's like, don't you get it? Grace is grace. And if grace is works, then it's not grace. For God's sake, let grace be grace, is what he's saying. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And though that was written way in the Old Testament, he's applying it to his day. And as we read it today in the 21st century, to this day, there is a blindness. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Or you could translate that word continually. Pretty sobering stuff. Well, let's take a look at it. Five proofs. And the first one is very evident. It's right there in verse 1. It's a personal proof. So he offers five proofs. And we're going to look at these. And the first one is the most powerful one. By the way, anytime you want to witness... You have some people you're witnessing to. The most powerful proof that you can first give is your own testimony. And Paul always uses this principle. So the first proof is a personal proof. Let's look at it. It's the salvation of Paul. He says, I ask, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He starts out real emphatic. He's very emphatic. He says, I myself. Look, me, me. He's like jumping up and down as he's writing this. See, I am the primary proof. As we've studied these chapters, a lot of theology, right? Has it made your head hurt? Really deep stuff. But at the beginning of every chapter, 9, 10, and 11, he always starts with the personal. Listen, theology is not impersonal. Doctrine is not impersonal. It's practical, it's personal, and it ought to make us passionate. So in Romans 9, he says he showed his personal pain over God's rejection of Israel. In Romans 10, he begins with his passionate prayer for their salvation. And here, he offers himself as positive proof that God indeed has not rejected all of Israel. Well, let's look at this. And break it down. I, I see three things in this personal proof and his salvation. First of all, let's look at Paul's Christianity. Paul's Christianity proves that ethnic, that you can be an ethnic Israelite who's also an elect Israelite in Christ. He's just simply saying this. I'm a Jew and I'm a Christian. And being a, a Christian doesn't eliminate my Jewishness. Right? And Hannah, Hannah, you got your mom. Where's your mom from? Peru, right? Are you sure? Are you, you hesitate there for a moment. Okay, are you sure? She's from Peru. She's from Peru. When she became a Christian, did she cease to be Peruvian? Randy, you're shaking your head emphatically. Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. We won't go any farther with that illustration. But, that, but the, the, you see the point? The point's right there. 
Right? You don't cease. Your mom any less French because she became a Christian? No, not at all. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, become... Oh, well, hi, Esther. (laughs) Glad you came. (laughs) Let's move on. Let's move on. That's what he's saying. He's, look, I am an Israelite. Now, this is important because he says, I'm an Israelite and I'm of the seed of Abraham. A couple things here. First of all, some Christians who I talked uh, last week about replacement theology, they want to say there's no longer an ethnic Israel, it's a spiritual Israel. The only problem with that is Paul uses the word Israel or Israelite 14 times in Romans 9 through 11. 14 times. And not a single time does it refer to a spiritual uh, group of people who are not Jewish. It always refers to ethnic Israel. So when he says, I'm an Israelite, He's saying the same thing that he said at the beginning of Romans 9. He's saying, look, I'm Jewish. You know, know, I just refrain myself. There's ways you can check for Jewishness, but we don't want to go there. Now, he says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. Again, uh, we talked at the beginning of this series about there's three seeds of Abraham. There's three kinds of ways you can be the seed of Abraham. There's physical seed only. And that's unsaved Jewish people. There's the physical and spiritual seed. You're a Jew, but you also believe in Christ, physical and spiritual. And then there is spiritual seed of Abraham. All of you here who believe in Jesus Christ, you are a seed, a child of Abraham by faith. You are a seed spiritually, but not physically. Make sense? Shake your head. Well, when he says, look at me, he's saying, look, I'm a physical child of Abraham even though I am a spiritual child of Abraham. And then he says, very importantly, the third thing that he says there about his Christianity is, I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, which means uh, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He's fulfilling them to me, and I'm a Jewish person. And then he says, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's important, because you can try to spiritualize Israel, you can try to spiritualize the offspring of Abraham, but there's one thing you cannot spiritualize. He said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob have 12 sons, and every Jewish person links themselves physically to that heritage. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I would put forth to you, there's another thing he's driving home. The tribes... The significance of being a part of a tribe was what? You were allotted what? You were allotted land. Very good. Very good class. You were allotted. We're here to learn. You are a class. You're students. Discovery hour, Dana. Discovery. Discovery hour. You were allotted land. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I have an inheritance. I can measure its land, its dirt, it's here. He's saying something very significant. He's saying, though I am a Christian, God has not rejected all of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I will get my allotted inheritance. It will be spiritual in Christ, but it will be physical and real. And everything that God has promised is mine. Very powerful, powerful proof. Wonderful proof. There's no doubt that Paul is talking about physical, ethnic Israel as a people who are going to inherit the promised land. So here's the first proof, Paul's Christianity. But two other things he's trying to drive home. Secondly, Paul's conversion. He's not just not talking about his Christianity. He's really honing in, I believe, on his conversion. His conversion is proof that God is still saving some of the most rebellious in Israel. Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, I myself, remember me? Saul of Tarsus, poster boy of the Pharisees. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. In Philippians 3, he says, you want to talk Jewishness, I'll talk Jewishness. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And when it comes to rejecting all that that rejects uh, Jewishness, I even killed the church. Now, we, we talked... And we've been talking in Romans 10 about radical rejection of Christ. Can you get any more radical than Saul of Tarsus? 
Can you get any more rebellious against God's purposes and and in His zeal without knowledge? I'm doing God a favor. Going house to house, killing Jews, or killing Christians. Forcing them to blaspheme their God. Holding coats while Christians were being stoned. Stephen, Acts chapter 7. That's pretty radical. And yet, what did Jesus do with this radical rebel? On the road to Damascus, in his sovereignty, in his grace, in his mercy, he reveals himself. And notice, he didn't just do it through someone witnessing. He sovereignly intervened in his life and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's about me. And what did Saul say? Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? And so in his conversion, if God could save Saul of Tarsus, a murderous persecutor of the church, then God has not totally rejected his people or he never would have saved Saul of Tarsus. But there's still more here because Saul was not just a converted Jew. He was a commissioned apostle. So look at the third aspect of this personal proof. Not only Paul's Christianity, his conversion, but his commission. Paul's commission is proof that God's not done with Israel's mission to the Gentiles. You see, here's the thing that we forget. God doesn't just save people. He calls them to serve him. And God didn't just call Abraham to bless him. What did he do in Genesis 12? He called Abraham to be a blessing to the peoples of the world. Israel was not Israel to be focused on themselves. Unfortunately, that's what they did. They were Israel in order to be what? A light to the, help me, a light to the Gentiles. Okay, and they failed to do that. Instead, they let the Gentiles evangelize them. They became like the Gentiles rather than helping the Gentiles to become like them a people of God. And so what happens here is Paul was not only converted, but even in his conversion, here's what God said to Paul. And the Lord said to him, when he said, Lord, who are you? He said, I am him who you persecute, Jesus. And then he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And here's what he says to him. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Sometimes we forget that this apostle to the Gentiles was still to witness to Jews. And by the way, we are too. When we encounter them and when we are able to support those who witness to them. No less than three times in the book of Romans. At the beginning... Here in Romans 11, and at the end, does Paul talk about his commission to the Gentiles? And here's what he's saying. He's saying, far from God rejecting his people totally. Look at me. I'm not only saved, though I was a radical rebel, but I have been called and commissioned to witness to the Gentiles as a Jew. Now, now think about this. If God was done with the Jews, and he wants to send a missionary to the Gentiles, who would you have thought he would have called? A Gentile. Why not? I mean, that, you know, that's, what, that's how we think. Instead, he said, no, I'm not done with the Jews. They're going to fulfill their purpose. And one of those individuals is going to be the Apostle Paul. Okay, there's the personal proof. Now, he moves to a second proof. And the second proof, you can fill in the blank there, it's theological. It's a theological proof. And it's very important because... As we think about Paul, we can say, okay, here's how we think. Here's how humans, we as humans think in our our, our man-centered way. We think, well, sure, there's a remnant. There's a remnant because like Paul, they chose to be saved. See, there was something in Paul that made him repent. There was something about Paul. Yeah, God's saving Jews, but he's saving the good Jews, the Jews that repent and believe, Jews like Paul. And he says, no, I want to offer you a second proof. And the second proof is theological proof. And it's this. The reason Paul got saved and reason there are any Jews or any Gentiles, for that matter, who are being saved is the sovereignty of God. And you're like, oh, no. I thought we were done with that. 
thought that was only Romans 9. I thought we got back to human responsibility. I thought we were going to move on to where things make sense and we can package and control these things. And, you know, we can understand them. No, he hasn't let up. Look at verse 2. This is so significant. In verse 2, in your Bibles, he takes the question and he repeats it in a positive statement. Has God rejected? He says no. And with the very same wording, except for three tiny words at the end, he says the same thing. God has not rejected his people, and here's why. Whom he foreknew. Whom he foreknew. Unless you think... Well, I don't know that that's that much about sovereignty. Jump down to verses 5 and 6. So, too, at this present time, there is a remnant. Okay, I know there's a remnant. They choose to believe in you. No. There's a remnant because of why? What three words? Chosen by grace. And then you go to verse 6 where he says, For God's sake, let grace be grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. So as you see these three phrases in your notes, let's just fill those in. The first is God's foreknowing. God's foreknowing. And it's a verb. It's an action. God is doing it. God's foreknowing. The second phrase is election by grace in verse 5. The sixth phrase that I want you to remember is grace is grace, not works. So you got that? Can you see those, the big points, the main points there? Let's look at the first one, verse 2. God's foreknowing. Okay. He's already spoken of foreknowledge in in this context. Look back to Romans 8, 29 through 30. Look at Romans 8, 29 through 30. Romans 8, 29 through 30, which we've said is kind of the basis for all of 9 and 10. So God has not only foreknown his people Israel, but by the way, Christian, he has foreknown you. So we need to know what this word means. Notice what he says, verse 29. For those whom he, say it with me, foreknew, he also to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see, these are all things that God is doing. Now, there's two ways to understand the meaning of this word. We can't avoid it. We've got to talk about it. There's two ways. I'm going to argue for the second way, but I want to present to you the first way. And uh, if, if you believe the Bible teaches that, uh, more power to you. We'll, we'll agree to disagree, and, and, and we'll move forward. You know, this isn't stuff that you divide over. Uh, Christ is more important, but it's crucial to his argument, so we... We do need to struggle with it and not gloss over it. So here's the two ways to understand foreknowledge. The first way seems the most obvious. Foreknowledge. Know beforehand. Here's the first way to understand this word. God knows beforehand in an intellectual, or I even like better, informational sense of general knowledge. Foreknowledge. God knows in an informational, intellectual sense of general knowledge. Now, most often, this. so then that begs the question, what does God know ahead of time, right? Well, first of all, the first question is he knows everything. And, and he doesn't know it ahead of time. He knows it all the time because he doesn't have this, you know. But, but in the context, he knows something before something. Okay. But what people in this first understanding see it, is referring to, they see it as referring to God knowing who will choose him. Because foreknowledge in the Bible is always applied to believers. So what God knows beforehand, the information that he knows beforehand is this. He looks through the corridors of time, or since he's God, he knows all things at one time, and he says, oh, this person's going to choose me. And because they, I know that they're going to choose me, I will choose them to be saved. Now, that's the understanding, and that's the basis. Now, what does that make the basis of our salvation based on? What? Our choice. How comfortable are you with that? How's your chooser? And if you doubt, 
if you have an overblown confidence in your chooser, ask your spouse or your friend or your parents, how's her chooser? How's his chooser? Something you want to base your eternal destiny on? And let's even back off from this. Let's, that's a little too personal. I'm sorry. Forgive me for making the Bible personal. Let's back off and talk about Israel. Just based on Romans 10, how good is Israel's chooser? You know, as he's looking down through time, how many times is he seeing them choose him? This isn't looking good if this is your viewpoint, okay? I'm just telling you. Now, there will be a time when the nation will choose him. But is that what this means? Here, here's what happens. If you believe that this is the meaning of foreknowledge, then you believe that God's choice of us is based on our choice of him and not the other way around. So in Romans 8, here's what the meaning would be. God chooses ahead of time. Those he already knows will someday choose him. He decides ahead of time to save those who he knows ahead of time will one day choose him. God saving us is based on us choosing him. Or here in Romans 11, what he would be saying is, the reason I know there's a remnant is because I know that someday they'll choose me. The reason I know... Saul of Tarsus will be saved is because I know he will choose me on the road to Damascus. Let's ignore the fact that he was going to kill people. He was rejecting me. I had to reveal myself to him. Let's ignore it. It's because he chose me. Therefore, I chose him. To Saul be the glory. Great things he has done. Okay. Now, there's three problems with this understanding, as if you don't already pick that up for me. Number one. God's clearly, clearly revealed why he chose Israel to be his elect people, and it's not because they would someday choose him to be their God. I've given you verses there. I will just read Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. The prophet Isaiah, who Paul quotes many times in Romans, says this, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake. I want you to get this. It's for my own sake. I did it for how should my name be profaned? My glory will I not give to another. I could read from Deuteronomy. I could read from Ezekiel. He keeps reminding Israel, the reason you're saved, the reason you're forgiven, it's not because of you. It's because of me. It's because of me. It's because of me. Now, second reason this understanding is not good is none of the, reverse, the verses that refer to God's foreknowledge say that he foreknew people's decision to choose Christ. See, he doesn't say, there is a remnant, verse 2, because whom I foreknew would one day choose me. He doesn't foreknow their decisions. It's always in reference to people. He knew you. He knew them. Everything about them. And what we know about us is what? The bad always outweighs the good. This is not good. You know, God's omniscience when it comes to us is, you know, he knows it. He knows it all. Okay, third, in passages where God foreknows Christ, there's a couple times where it says, in the foreknowledge of God, he delivered Christ up. You know, he knew Christ was going to the cross. Well, this understanding of foreknowledge would say the reason Christ went to the cross or the reason the Father allowed Christ went to the cross is because he looked through time or he knew ahead of time that Christ would choose the cross. And therefore, he said, well, Jesus, since I know you're going to choose the cross, I'm going to choose you to be the Savior of the world. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So let's look at the second meaning. Here's the second meaning. God chooses beforehand in a relational sense of personal knowledge. So the idea is not so much knowing, it's knowing in a personal way. He chooses beforehand in a relational sense of personal knowledge. You see, here's what you've got to understand. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there's more than one way of knowing. See, we live in the informational age. We live in the age of technology and bytes and, and, and digital, and we are all about what? Information. So when we see foreknow, we're like, hey, this is knowledge. This is information. Well, in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, knowing something is more about a personal relationship with that person. The Bible says Adam knew his wife Eve. 
Men, let me give you a little marital thing worth everything today. Your wife doesn't want to know you know her in an informational content way. Mr. Engaged right there, take notes, okay? <laughs> this is not about information processing of your fiancé. Am I right? All right. This is, you want move on? You want me to move on? Okay, I'll move on. <laughs> What's it about? What kind of knowledge? How do you need to know your spouse? You need to know them in an intimate, personal, relational way. Make sense? You know how Jesus defined eternal life? That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Does God want you to know him in an informational, know all about me in, 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 in the content of what it... No, he wants you to have this love, personal relationship. Now, I've given you in your notes, let's, let's relate it to God and Israel. So let's get into the same context. Notice what he says in Amos 3.2. God says to, his, to the nation Israel, he's saying to them, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. Now... Does God know every nation on the earth? Families there is nation. Does he know every nation on the earth? So how can he say, you only have I known? He means, you only have I known in a personal, intimate way because I have chosen you to be my people and for me to be your God. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Okay? Because he's saying, why? Because we got, we're in this together. We're in this together. Look at Hosea 13, 4 through 7. Noah is used in the same way. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. Well, they knew other gods. They worshiped. This is why they're being you know, punished is because they're idolaters. But what he means is you know no other God in a personal, intimate way but the one true God. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of Dra. See right there, how did God know them in the wilderness? Well, did he know? Well, he knew they were sinning. But what did he do in the wilderness? He said, I knew you in the wilderness. I fed you with manna. I brought water out of a rock. I provided Moses to shepherd you, Aaron to intercede for you. I knew you. I loved you. I chose you. I did not abandon you. And so he goes on. But then look at Jeremiah. He says the same thing to Jeremiah. He says to Jeremiah in chapter 1 when he's talking to Jeremiah about calling him as a prophet. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Is he talking information or is he talking relationship? Well, notice what he goes on to say. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Those are all three parallel ideas. I knew you, I concentrated you, consecrated you, and I appointed you. In other words, knowing is choosing. Choosing to love. Choosing to have an intimate personal relationship. So, foreknowledge almost means the same thing as predestination. Here's the difference. Because predestination is always based on foreknowledge. Well, does that mean that God chooses us because he knew we would choose him? No, it means he chooses us because before the foundation of the world, he chose to know you in an intimate, personal way, even though he knew you would be a rebel at heart. See, he chose you because he first chose you. That leaves us out of the picture a little bit. Yeah. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Great things he has done. Unless we miss it, look at verse 5. It's an election by grace. Lest we miss this. Lest we miss this and try to somehow inject ourselves into the picture in a way to where we get the glory. He says, no, this is a remnant election by grace. You see... It doesn't say he chose us because we chose him. It says he chose us for one reason. He chose us by grace. You say, yeah, but what's grace? Well, verse 6, grace is grace, not works. Grace is grace, not works. I mean, I I love verse 6. This has now become my, my favorite book of the Bible is whatever I'm studying. Yes, even Romans 9 through 11. 
And it's whatever verse just grabs me today. And what grabs me today is, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You're like, I got it. And he says, no, you don't. Grace is grace, not works. I got it. No, you don't. Grace is grace, not works. Got it? Okay, one person believes in grace, not works. Grace is grace, not works. Got it? Okay, we got it. So, the proof is pretty convincing so far. We've got personal proof, and then lest we think it's because the... uh, the remnant chooses him. He says, no, we got theological proof. It's the sovereignty of God. And now he brings in more biblical proof. Biblical proof. Because Paul never says anything just based on abstract theology. He roots it in the scriptures. He's talking about Jews. So he goes to the Old Testament. And in Romans eleven three through 4, here's what he says. This is really amazing. He says... Do you not know what the scriptures say? Do you think it was only just me that says things like, are you reading your Bible? Do you not, do you not know your Bible? And here's what he says. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? And I think this is beautiful. Literally he says, in Elijah, as if, because here's the thing. Back then they didn't have chapter and verse. So how do you say, turning your scrolls to? You know, you didn't have chapter and verse, and so they would say, in Elijah. And, and the point was, remember, that turn to the portion of Scripture that talks about Elijah. And he's saying, look, if you study the story of Elijah, you're going to come across this. And here's what he says. How Elijah appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have done, demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Okay, give you the background real quick. There's, if you would ask any Jewish person or if you have read the New Te- Old Testament and you said, when has there been the greatest time of rebellion against God by his people? You would have to think of the time of King Ahab, the, one of the most evil kings, and his queen by the name of Jezebel. And they had killed nearly all the prophets. They had demolished all the true places of worship and had erected altars to Baal, so much so that when uh, Elijah went to Mount Carmel, he had to take on 800 prophets of of Baal, and he alone stood... I mean, Israel had all but rebelled against God. And you know the story. He, 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 He goes up against them on Mount Carmel, And fire comes down. He wins the day, and then he runs off away from a woman. You know, you can face 800 prophets, and Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And he says, he hightails it and hides. And then he makes this weak, pitiful prayer and says, look, they've rejected you to the point to where only I. Now, have you ever been there? You ever been there where you think, Everybody is compromising worthless Christians, except me, God, and I'm getting tired of it. I mean, I'm standing in the gap. I'm holding the faith. But these worthless people, of whom I'm sitting among, they are not as committed as I. And I'm tired. And you ought to be more thankful for a guy like me. You ought to be glad I'm on your team. That is what he's saying. Now, in light of God's theology and sovereignty, is he on the team because of what he is? No. And so what's the divine answer? I love this. It says in verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? Now, that's just so weak of what is really there. It's The word there is a divine revelation, an authoritative word from God. What does God say? is the reality of the situation. I have kept for myself. I have done it, and it's for me. It's not about you, Elijah. 7,000 people that you don't even know about. And they have not bowed the knee. Do they have a choice to make? They do. But you know why they made that choice? I have kept them for myself. Now, don't you think Paul could relate a little bit to Elijah? I mean... They have tore down God's altar, who is what? Jesus Christ. They put him on the cross. They're out to kill him. He runs for his life. 
He's been stoned, left for dead. But instead of being an Elijah who focuses on his own choices and the human choices of rebellion, he chooses to focus on the sovereignty of God. And instead of interceding against Israel and complaining and whining and having a pity party, he says, God, you are awesome. There is hope. There's a remnant and I'm going to keep witnessing. I'm going to keep praying for Israel. I'm going to keep pushing on because this isn't about me. It's about your sovereignty, your glory, your promises. I am sustained because of you, not because of me. And I don't base my faithfulness and my passion on, the, on what I see other people do. Listen, we are headed for times that are more difficult than you have ever imagined. And I don't mean that we're going to go through the great tribulation, but God didn't say there wasn't going to be pretty bad tribulation before the great tribulation. And this country is not God's elect nation, and we don't have any promise from God to say that this country is not going to be severely tried, every Christian in this country. And listen, if you base your warm fuzzies about God on how many people are serving Him, you ain't going to make it. You got to base your fidelity, your love, your passion, your faithfulness to this church, your faithfulness to your Lord, your faithfulness to witnessing, not based on how many reject you, but on the basis that God's sovereign saving purposes are being accomplished. He wants to use me a part of it, and I got to get out there and do it. Not only do I have to, I get to. Because this is who I am. Therefore, this is what I do. I've been called by a sovereign, merciful God. Do you get the point? Just as Elijah concluded from widespread unbelief in Israel that he alone was loyal to Yahweh, the, you know, the Lord God, Yahweh, the promise-keeping God, and actually prayed against his own people, it, Paul fears that some people in his, mate, his day might do the same. In other words, what, he, what he's afraid of is, let's not look at this by what our, our senses see. Wow, the Jews are rejecting God. Therefore, there, are no, there is no future for Israel. No, don't look at that. Look at God's sovereign purposes. Instead of doom and gloom, we should take hope in God's sovereign election and trust Him as we seek to share the gospel with all who are lost, Jew and Gentile. Don't be an Elijah. Be a Paul that intercedes for God's chosen people. And now he drives the point home in verse 5 with continual proof. Continual proof. And why do I say that? Because not only is there a remnant in Elijah's day, oh, and by the way, Elijah, in his self-pity, thought how many Jews were, how big was the remnant? One. And of course, who was that? Him. In reality, how big was the remnant? And there was even more, because there was prophets that he knew were in hiding. But he thought, the only ones that are really standing up for God, he said, no, there's 7,000. And I think that's 7,000, it's a literal number, but I think it's also a symbolic number. Listen, the remnant will be as big as God intends it to be. His promises will be fulfilled. You know what's beautiful in the handout that I gave you? Well, let's look at it. First of all, the Lord is coming. There's several ministries even today, Chosen People Ministries, I have their, go to their website. Listen, let this lesson drive you to have a heart for Israel and realize that there are, 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 are ministries, and we've invited them in here. here. Jews for Jesus uh, several years ago did a presentation of the Passover for us. And I was just so, man, it just, I'm telling you, you get around a born-again Jewish Christian, and you're going to get excited because that's just the way it is. You're touching the sovereign purposes of God. You're shaking hands with God's purposes. Wow. Uh, Jews for Jesus. And there even is a movie, The Mysterious Prophecy of Isaiah 53. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an evangel evangelism tool to lead a Jewish person to Christ from Isaiah 53. Because, you know, hint, hint, New Testament isn't the place to start with the Jewish people. Okay. By the way, it's not even the place Paul starts with most Christians. 
All right, enough on that. But let's read this handout. On, on this handout, this is just, I, I thought this was so cool. The president, Mitch Glaser of Chosen People Ministries, who himself is a part of the remnant, just like Paul was. He says, number three, here's what you need to understand about reaching Jewish people. Our gospel presentation will be accepted by a few. Huh? Chapter and verse, Romans 11. See, he's letting the Bible help him. And he says, I, I, I love this. I usually shy away from discussing the numbers of Jewish people coming to faith, yet I'm often asked, how many Jewish people are there today who believe in Jesus? How big is the remnant? I understand that we often want to know specifics so that we can rejoice in what God's doing. I can only give you an approximate number as no scientific worldwide studies have been done to make this determination. Ah, uh, we just learned why you wouldn't want a scientific study. Is it going to be accurate? Elijah did a scientific study based on his senses and said there was one. He was off by 7,000. So here's what he says. Some in the Jewish community suggest there are more than 300,000. Isn't that awesome? 300,000. And I would promise you that that's more because that's just based on human perception. Okay? But he says, I would put that number a bit lower, maybe at 200,000. So maybe 300,000 is the, you know, you know so I, I'm just saying, approximately. But listen to this. The number of, of believers in Israel, this is radical, has grown over in the last two decades from just a few thousand to perhaps more than 15,000. We do see Jewish people coming to know the Lord, but with, now look at this, 14 to 15 million Jewish people in the world. It is clear that the numbers are a small, we are just a remnant. This does not disappoint me, though, as the Lord has told us that this would be the case. The scriptures teach us there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans eleven five. The Bible teaches us that we should be both confident and realistic as God has preserved a remnant of Jewish people who will come to faith in Jesus and that this remnant will increase as we draw closer to the end. I've also given you, therefore, how we should view the Jewish people. A great statement in support that's balanced. We, we're for them, but we're not for them to the point that we think they can go to heaven without Jesus. And how do you love anyone on this planet as a Christian? You love them enough to tell them the truth about Jesus, even if it might offend them. But you do it in love, seasoned with grace. And so then that brings us to the final proof and by the way, there's even Jewish tracts. Is that just not the coolest thing? Just a cool thing. It's in English and Hebrew. Number five, the practical proof, and it's this. The significance of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. When you come to verse 7, he says this. Okay, I've given you the proof. It's, it's personal, theological, biblical. It's continual. Now let's make a practical application. What then? And he sums it all up here. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The seeking there is, is earnest, diligent seeking. Israel failed to be saved by their works, but the elect attained it, but the rest were hardened. That word, the elect, is literally the election attained it. You're saying the election. Are the Republicans here? What's going on? The Democrats? What's happening? No, the election. God's sovereign choosing of, of, of the remnant is why they are receiving it. And so you have the inspired confirmation and you have the inspired com or the uh, inevitable confirmation uh, conclusion and the inspired confirmation. And then you have the consequences. Now, let me just say this. What do you see in those last verses are choices are important. Human responsibility is important because when you reject Christ, God will harden those who reject him, and ultimately they will be judged forever. Right now, Israel's backs are bent with the burden of their works because they've chosen to reject Christ. Right now, the things that they glory in are an obstacle to come. I, we glory, we got the law, and that's the law that has now hindered them from coming to Christ. What are lessons learned from God's elect remnant? Because this isn't just out there. Number one, Apart from God's saving grace, sovereign grace, no one would be saved. We ought to leave this lesson today being thankful. 
Because just like Saul of Tarsus, Christ intervened in your life. Christ took you when you were blind and opened your eyes. And when you were deaf, He removed your fingers out of your ears. And when you were bent with the burden of your sin, He broke the shackles and set you free. It's Him. It's Him. Give Him glory. Secondly, you're not the only one who is striving to serve God in a time of great unbelief. So let's get humble. You know, boy, it's easy. It's easy. It's not looking, you know, on the horizon... Things are not looking good. It's going to get tough. But you know what? What happens is I, I, I get alone and I get my self-pity and I think, well, if they'd all be as committed as I would, we could get something done around here. And the reality is, look, I'm not the only one serving God and neither of you. Let's be humble and realize there's more. There's more going on in this great nation as it nationally goes down the tube There's more going on in this nation, and it's around the world, and Glenwood is a part of it. The Easter egg extravaganza can be another testimony testimony to it, but we need to be humble and ask God to help us. And then third, God's elect will be saved from among all peoples, including the nation of Israel. So let's get hopeful. Some of you, you, you want to witness, and you get rejected, and then you say, I'm not doing that anymore. I can't handle that. No, you be hopeful. Because God has his elect, and he is saving them, but he's using you to do it. And then number four, salvation is of the Lord, but he uses people to accomplish his saving purposes. Get involved. God's doing it, but he wants to use you. Fill an egg for Jesus, okay? Be a servant at the extravaganza. Invite a friend. Get out there and with a positive attitude, get excited about what God is doing. Get your eyes off of the Fox channel, off of MSNBC, into the scriptures, onto a great and mighty God, and put a smile on your face because you have hope in Jesus. Get it off your problems. Let's get going. Amen? Amen. What a way to go. Father, help us to go. And go forth with positive humility and biblical hope and confidence in your sovereignty. Let us not take credit for our salvation. If we are saved, it's all of you. And when people are lost, it's all of them. They have rejected the greatest offer, the greatest Savior, the greatest Lord, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, coming again to save all of Israel and all who put their faith in you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Good stuff.